I want you to suppose, suppose that your granddaughter, grandson, son, daughter, whoever, someone little, asked you this one question, how would you answer? How is one saved by the justice and wrath of God? Suppose the little one asked you, how is one saved by the justice and wrath of God? Mommy and daddy, how are you saved in Christ? How are you saved from the wrath of God? What would be your answer? How are you saved by the wrath of God? Well, the simple and correct answer is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ, or is it not, that we are saved from the righteous wrath of holy God. It is in Christ, in Christ alone, where we escape the righteous judgment of God. There is nothing that we can do, son or daughter, to appease the wrath of God, but it is only by Christ, in Christ alone. In Christ we escape eternal hell eternal condemnation and eternal punishment. But what if they said, that's great, mommy and daddy, or grandma, grandpa, whatever. We're saved by Christ alone. But what if they asked you, but what about Christ that saves us? See, so we're saved by Christ, but what about him makes us free from eternal condemnation and gives us a righteousness that's not of our own? What about him? What did he do for you? What would you say? Well, the typical answer that many Christians give, well, son, he died for me. Right? That is how I am saved from the wrath of God. That is how I have a standing before God that I did not have prior to. That Christ died for me. It is the substitutionary death of Christ that saves us from the judgment of God. It is Christ and Christ alone and his death that secures our home in heaven. Is that right? Well, of course it's right. The problem is it's incomplete. It's right. It's just incomplete. You have 50% of it right, but there's another half that you're missing of how one is saved from the wrath of God which leads to our study this, more, this evening. In a nutshell, the main thing that I'm going to argue this evening, the main thing I'm going to argue for is that we are not only saved by the death of Christ, but we are also saved by the life of Christ. We're not merely saved by the death of Christ, we are also saved by the life of Jesus Christ. We are saved by the passive obedience of Christ, and we are saved by the active obedience of Jesus Christ. And friends, this is, if I think of out of all the studies I've done, this probably is the most important one that I've done so far, because it answers the question, how is one saved in Christ? What is it about Christ that saves us? And I would argue that the life of Christ adds just as much merit to our salvation as does the death of Jesus Christ. And friends, if we were to survey this doctrine throughout church history, we see that the active obedience of Christ 
is the one thing about the saving work of Christ that has come under the most attack. One name that comes to mind is the 17th century uh, Reformed theologian. And there's some debates over whether you, one can be even performed and deny the active obedience of Christ. But this man by the, name of, uh, by the name of Johannes Piscator, he was a 17th century Reformed theologian, and he denied the active obedience of Christ. And what uh, Piscator essentially was arguing for is that Christ's obedient life merely qualified him for the cross and that removing the curse of sin was enough to constitute believers righteous in God's sight. In other words, what he means is this. We don't need the life of Christ. All we need is the death of Christ. It is only the death of Christ that saves us and not the life of Christ that saves us. So all he was focusing on was the death aspect, not the life, obedient, 33 years of, of uh, obeying God's moral law aspect. At the Westminster Assembly, uh, one of the biggest debates other than antinomianism was these questions of how is man saved in Christ? Some of the questions were this, uh, what was necessary for a sinner to gain entrance into heaven? Was it merely a removal of guilt by the shedding of Christ's blood? Or must there be a supply of righteousness added? How is a believer justified before God? Is it by a person's faith or Christ's righteousness? Friends, even now, when we think about the active obedience of Christ and how it's been lost in many textbooks, but also many of the songs that we sing. Yes, I love this, to sing great hymns about the death of Christ. But friends, we also are to sing hymns about the perfect life of Christ, the perfect righteousness that is imputed onto us. How many of us, when we talk about the great things that Christ has done for us, we speak of Jesus Christ pay the full penalty of sin for us, and then we stop there. Friends, the glory of Christ's work is not merely that he paid the full penalty of sin for us, but that he lived for us. See, if you are just thinking about the death of Christ and we think about salvation in Christ, then you are, mere, you are limiting the life of Christ and the work of Christ. So friends, this evening, I want us to consider the active obedience of Christ. And we're just going to do that with just two points, subpoints, whatever they are. In just one point, though, uh, what is the active obedience of Christ? And what is the biblical witness to the active obedience of Christ? What is the active obedience of Christ? And what is the biblical witness to the active obedience of Christ? And I'm going to tell you this right now. This, uh, argue, this, this doctrine can be very technical or can get very technical. And I don't plan on being very technical because much of the things I'm saying this evening are things you've already heard before and things I'm sure you're already going to agree with. Um, but stay with me when we get to some of the more uh, thorny and naughty arguments of the active obedience of Christ. Let's consider the first point, and that is what is the active obedience of Christ? What is the active obedience of Christ? When 
Theologians speak of the obedience of Christ. They distinguish the one obedience of Christ, and that's important to note. They distinguish the one obedience of Christ in two ways. We can say that there's two aspects or two angles to the one obedience of Christ. The first aspect is called the passive obedience of Christ. The passive obedience of Christ. And the passive obedience of Christ refers to the penal effects of sin that Jesus bore on the cross. The penal effects of sin that Jesus bore on the cross. In other words, the passive obedience of Jesus Christ is his suffering the penalty of the law's curse by shedding his blood on the cross. It's his suffering the penalty of the law's curse by shedding his blood on the cross. The passive obedience of Christ refers to his suffering and death on the cross. But friends, when we think about the suffering of Christ, we aren't not to just limit the suffering of Christ merely to his cross work. For as we know, the entire life of Christ was a life lived of suffering, was it not? It was suffering on to glory. So when we think about the passive obedience of Christ, yes, it is, the, uh, it is his death on the cross. It is his sufferings on the cross. But we must not limit the passive obedience to just his sufferings on the cross because we know from Scripture that the entire life of Christ was a life lived of suffering. Now let's consider the second, and that is the active obedience of Christ. The active obedience of Christ. And the active obedience of Christ refers to Jesus' perfect and positive accomplishment of all that God's law requires of humanity. It's Jesus' perfect, Christ's perfect, positive accomplishment of all that God's law requires of humanity. In other words, the active obedience of Christ is Jesus Christ obeying the law of God throughout his life perfectly. So when I say active obedience, think of Jesus perfectly obeying the law of God. And when I say passive, think of Jesus suffering the law's curse, the penalty of sin on the cross. Now we must note, and this is important to write down if you're taking notes, that the active and passive obedience of Christ are logical distinctions and not temporal distinctions. They are logical distinctions and not temporal distinctions. And what that means is this. We can't ascribe the passive obedience of Christ to one stage of his life, nor can we ascribe the active obedience of Christ to one stage of his life. It's not as if when Jesus Christ is living before he goes to the cross, it's not as if when he is living and obeying the law, then he's actively obeying. And then when he goes to the cross, he turns off the act of obedience, and now he's passively obeying. But friends, what we are saying is the entire life of Christ is one obedience. When Christ is on the cross, he's also actively obeying. How do we know that? Because he says that no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down on his own accord, right? Right? 
when Jesus Christ is actively obeying, he's also passively obeying because he lived a life of suffering. So friends, although we make these distinctions, they're logical distinctions and not in-time temporal distinctions. He's not doing active obedience here and then doing passive obedience here. But he's always doing both at the same time, is what I'm trying to say. The two always coincide. They always are together. They are distinct, but they are inseparable. Francis Turretin, the great Reformed scholastic, explains the difference between the active and passive obedience of Christ's righteousness and its importance. He says the two things are not to be separated from each other. Active or passive are not to be separated. We are not to say, as some do, that the satisfaction is by the passive work of Christ alone and merit is by the active work alone. The satisfaction and the merit are not to be thus viewed in isolation, each by itself, because the benefit of each depends upon the total work of Christ. And what he's essentially saying is we are not to separate the active obedience of Christ from the passive obedience of Christ. But two are in union with one another, and both are necessary for us to be justified before God. Friends, these are the, uh, it's of utmost importance that we understand that, that these are logical distinctions in the one obedience of Christ. Because these logical distinctions, the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ, speak to the two benefits of justification. Now, let me ask you a question. If someone was to ask you, what is justification? What would you say? When someone was to ask you, what is justification? What would you say? And the typical answer that many will give is justification is that we are forgiven of our sins. And that's merely it. But friends, that is not all that justification entails. In fact, if, you, if that's all you're saying, then you are missing the very you're missing a, a grand uh, benefit to justification. Historically, and more importantly, biblically, there are two aspects of justification. So when someone says, "How are you justified?" Yes, you are, you are justified by the forgiveness of your sins, but there's also something else. Justification involves the forgiveness of sins and the right to eternal life. The forgiveness of sins, and this is important to understand because this is going to make a lot of sense as we move on. Justification is, has is two aspects. The forgiveness of sins and the right to eternal life. That's justification. Now consider with me the first aspect of justification, that is the forgiveness of sins. The law requires punishment for sin. Sin brings a penalty leading to death for every person born naturally since Adam. God, as we know, will not sweep sin under the rug, but we know that that penalty of sin must be paid for. And we know that it is Jesus Christ that pays the penalty of sin that we owe. By Christ's blood, he pays the debt that we owe. But friends, justification consists of more than just forgiveness of sins. Justification is more than just forgiveness of sins because if we are only forgiven of our sins, then we still have not met the requirements for eternal life. If all Jesus Christ did for you, and this might sound controversial and shocking, but 
if all that Jesus did for you was die for you, then he doesn't merit you eternal life. If all that Jesus did for you was die for you, then you don't have eternal life. Because in God's law, attaining eternal life, obtaining eternal life requires perfect obedience to God's law. Eternal life requires perfect obedience to God's law. If a person has the guilt of sin removed, then that person has been delivered from hell. However, if he is to enter heaven, then he needed a righteousness that's not of his own. See, friends, if Christ merely just died for you, then yes, you escape hell, but you don't enter heaven. Why? Because you don't have a righteousness that's not of your own. That is why. You don't have an imputed righteousness. You merely just have your sins forgiven. And we're going to talk about that as we move on. Without perfect obedience to God's law, men can never be justified in the sight of God. And the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ perfectly answer our need to be justified before God. One theologian says, Jesus' obedience can be understood to have a passive and active dimensions, which correspond to the two benefits of justification. Forgiveness of sins corresponds to Christ's passive obedience. And the securing of eternal life corresponds to Christ's active obedience. Now, to summarize this first sub-point, what have we learned about the twofold obedience of Christ, which corresponds to the twofold aspects of justification? In order for us to be justified before God, we need two things. We need forgiveness of sins, and we need a righteousness that's not of our own. We need to be justified before God. We need the forgiveness of sins. And how do we have our sins forgiven? By the passive obedience of Christ, right? By the sufferings of Jesus Christ upon the cross. But justification is more than just forgiveness of sins. But justification also includes eternal life. And how do we get eternal life from Christ? Well, in that... Uh, we have eternal life by the active obedience of Christ, whereby in the life of Christ, he has won a perfect and righteous standing before God for us by obeying God's moral law. That is how we have a right standing before God, not by his death merely, but by Jesus Christ living for us and obeying God's law for us. Now let's consider the second sub-point, and that is, what is the biblical witness to the active obedience of Christ? And I'm not going to give you arguments for the passive obedience, because many of us have grown up learning about the sufferings and death of Christ. What I want to focus on is how the life of Christ adds merit and value to our justification. Consider with me Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, with a special focus to verses 18 and 19. The word of the Lord says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many die through one man's trespass, 
much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one trespass led to, uh, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For just as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to end to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also reigned, might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. These ten verses, in these ten verses, St. Paul sets before us the two acts, these two acts of men, or these acts of two men. The disobedience of Adam and what that led to, and the obedience of Christ and what that led to. As you've heard before from this pulpit and from many other ministers, there are only two people that matter in the history of all of mankind, Adam and Jesus Christ. And you are either in Adam or you are in Jesus Christ. And here the Apostle Paul is setting before, before us these two Adams. And he's contrasting these two Adams. Adam, as we know, was created upright and righteous. God imposed a covenant upon Adam called the covenant of works. And if we were to sum up the covenant of works and just one statement, it would be this, do this and live. That, in a nutshell, was the covenant of works. Do this, Adam, and live. Adam was commanded not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But is that all that Adam was commanded to do or not to do? Is that all that was required in this covenant of works, merely not eat from one tree? No. Adam was to follow God's moral law that was written on his heart. Adam was to obey God by walking by faith. He was to work and tend the garden. Mind you, Adam's work is not like how we work. Adam's work was a joyous work. He was to be fruitful and exercise dominion over all the earth. And friends, if Adam completed the covenant of works, if he passed his probationary period, then great rewards would be given to him. He would receive confirmed righteousness. His natural body would transform and change into a spiritual body. He would enter and enjoy God's Sabbath rest. He would see God in that beatific vision. In a nutshell, Adam, if completed the covenant of works, would have received eternal life. Now, friends, suppose you're little brother or whoever, someone small, asked you the question, how does one merit eternal life? What would you say? How does one merit eternal life? Well, yes, it is by Jesus Christ and him alone. 
But to Adam, in this context, there was no Jesus Christ to believe in. So how could Adam in the garden merit eternal life? It was by obeying God's moral law. Adam could have earned eternal life by obeying God's moral law. In fact, that is a question that I posed to some of the brothers in the church. In a covenant of works that Adam was under, could Adam have merited eternal life? Now think about that question. Could Adam have merited eternal life under a covenant of works? Well, we have to say yes. But what do we mean by merit? Does it mean that Adam, upon his own strength, would have merited eternal life? That Adam, if he just worked hard enough, he would have merited eternal life? No. But Adam would have merited eternal life by walking by faith in God and God alone. Adam, as we know, didn't walk by faith. And when Adam ate of the tree, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, essentially what Adam did was Adam let go of the sovereign hand of God. Adam said, I no longer want to live under your law, but I want to live under my law. I want to live autonomously. Adam disobeyed God's law. Because of Adam's sin, Paul says in verse 12, sin came into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. He says in verse 16 that Adam brought condemnation. So Adam brought sin, death, and condemnation into the world. How? Because he disobeyed God's law. That is how. Everyone now is born with the post-fall conditions of Adam. We all are sinners. We all are subject to death, as we learned this morning. We all are condemned. We all are lawbreakers. And in Adam, there are two things that we need. We need our sins forgiven, and we need a righteous standing before God. Because of Adam, we are in need of two things. We need our sins forgiven, and we need a righteous standing before God. This is where Jesus Christ comes at the picture. The Apostle Paul says in verse 18 and 19, Therefore, as one man trespassed, led a condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now to summarize, Adam was under a covenant of works. The covenant of works can be summarized as do this and live. He was to obey God's moral law, and if he obeyed God's moral law, then he would have merited for himself eternal life. Obeying God's law merits eternal life in this covenant of works. But what happens? We know that Adam felled, and this is where Jesus Christ comes at the picture. Who is Jesus Christ called in comparison to Adam? He's called the second and last Adam. Jesus Christ is the second Adam. Now, why is Christ called a second Adam? Why is he called an Adam-like figure? Because he represents people the way Adam represented people. Adam was a federal head. He represented others. Jesus Christ is a federal head. He represents 
others. But also, Jesus Christ does what Adam failed to do, but also Jesus Christ undoes what Adam did. That's important to note. Jesus Christ does what Adam failed to do, and then he undoes what Adam did. Adam was in a covenant of works, which was to obey God's moral law in order to merit eternal life. Jesus Christ was in a covenant as well. He was in a covenant called the covenant of redemption, which theologians call Christ's covenant of works. We have two Adams here. We have Adam in the garden who was in a covenant of works. And then we have Jesus Christ who was the second Adam who was under a covenant of works. Now, there are many differences between Adam's covenant of works and Jesus Christ's covenant of works. But if there is one similarity between Adam's covenant of works and Christ's covenant of works, it is this, that both had to obey the moral law in order to merit eternal life. That is the similarities between Adam's covenant and Christ's covenant. Both had to obey the moral law. Now, here's the kicker. Adam had to obey God's moral law in a garden. Jesus had to obey God's moral law in the wilderness. He had to obey God's moral law around other immoral people, around sinful people. You know how it is, Christian, when you are around non-Christians and how uncomfortable you are? Imagine Jesus Christ who lived 33 years and how uncomfortable he was being around various sinners. But Jesus Christ had to obey God's moral law. Now, why was Christ, why did he have to obey God's moral law? Why did Jesus Christ have to obey God's moral law? Why couldn't Jesus Christ just come and die for us? Mind you, why couldn't Jesus Christ be helicoptered in on a parachute, come down on Thursday, die, and then resurrect on Sunday? No 33 years. No living, none of that stuff. Have you ever thought about that? Why couldn't he just came and die? Why did he have to live? The simple answer is because all humans are bound to God's law. All humans are bound to God's moral law. Again, what are the two things that we need to be justified before God? We need forgiveness of sins, but also we need a righteousness that's not our own. Friends, how do we get our sins forgiven? By Jesus shedding his blood for us. How do we receive a righteousness that's not our own? By the perfect life of obedience of God's holy law by Jesus Christ. That is how we have a right standing before God. We have our sins forgiven by the blood of Christ and we have a right standing before God by the perfect life of obedience of Christ. Now, think about this, saints. Why is it that Christ's blood was able to satisfy the wrath of God and take away our sins forever? Now, I'm throwing a lot of questions at you, but these are questions that are, that are not speculative, but should be questions that you consider. What is it about the blood of Jesus Christ that takes away our sins forever? Yes, because he's truly God. One drop of God, of Jesus Christ's blood, is of infinite value. Yes, of course. 
but also because Jesus Christ lived a life of total obedience to God's holy law. When we talk about Jesus Christ being the spotless lamb, why is he the spotless lamb? Have you ever thought about that? We sing about it and we hear it in scripture and we recite it. How? Why is Jesus Christ the spotless lamb? Is it because he's God? Oh, yes. But also because he lived a life of total obedience to God's law. That is why Jesus Christ is the spotless lamb without blemish. Because he lived a life of perfect obedience. We are made righteous because of the righteous life of Jesus Christ. That is what Paul has in mind in verse 19. For as one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's disobedience, the many were made righteous. I might have got that confused. The obedience of Christ that Paul is referring to is not merely only the cross, but the entire obedience of Christ. And let me just give you a couple more verses you can write down. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Hebrews 5, 7 through, 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Quick commentary on that. This text teaches us the glorious doctrine of double imputation. And what that simply means is our violation of the law is imputed unto Christ. And Christ's fulfillment of the law is imputed unto us. Our disobedience is given to Christ, and Christ's obedience to the law is given to us. Romans 4, verses 5 through 6. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And saints... What we see here is that the righteousness of Christ is transferred to our account so that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus Christ. See, in light of all the maybe technical language I've been using and all the various arguments, the just of everything of the act of obedience of Christ is this. When God sees you, he sees Christ because you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In closing, um, Drake, uh, the death of Christ, when we think about the death of Christ, we aren't to think that that is merely enough for us to be saved. The death of Christ is not merely enough to be saved, friends. For if Christ only died for us, and he did not live for us, then we don't have a perfect standing before God. But if Christ only died for us, then he merely puts us at a neutral position. J. Gresham Machen brings this out clearly. A long quote, but it's easy to understand. 
He says, if Christ had merely paid the penalty of sin for us and had done nothing more, we should be at best uh, back in the situation in which Adam found himself where God placed him under the covenant of works. In other words, if Christ only paid the penalty of our sins through his passive sufferings, and hear this, then we are merely transported back into the Garden of Eden. If Jesus Christ only died for us, then we're merely like Adam, placed back in the garden. If Christ only died for us, the penalty of Adam's sinning would have been removed from us because all have been paid by Christ. But the future, of, uh, but the future eternal life would have been dependent upon our perfect obedience to the law of God. We should simply have been put back in the probationary period again. Here we begin to understand why Jesus' passive obedience is not enough. If divorced from his active obedience, the passive sufferings of Christ discharge the enormous debt we owe due to our sins and the sin of Adam. In effect, Jesus' passive obedience alone would bring our account from hopelessly overdrawn back to a zero balance. Our debt would be retired. But having our debt retired and our sins forgiven does not get us into heaven. It simply returns us to the starting point. More must be done if we are to gain heaven. Righteousness must be completed, completely fulfilled, either by us or by a representative acting on our behalf. Simply put, if, if Jesus Christ merely died for you, then your bank account would go back to zero. Your debt would be paid for, but your bank account would go back to zero. But that doesn't merit you heaven. In order for you to merit heaven, you need your bank account overflowed by a positive righteousness. That's how you merit heaven. In closing, friends, again, what have we learned from this lesson? Well, I hope you've seen that when we say that we are saved by Christ and Christ alone, that we aren't to limit merely the work of Christ only to his sufferings on the cross. I hope that you understand that, and I hope that if you didn't know that, then maybe you, hopefully you know that now, because this is vital for us to understand as Christians, that Jesus Christ and the work of Christ is not merely him dying, but it's also him living that we are saved by the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. Now, how does one stand before God and is seen acceptable in his sight? It is by the sacrificial death of Christ that removes our sin. Amen. But also by the perfect life of obedience to God's law that allows us to wear that righteous robe. We all sing about this righteous robe that we wear. We all talk about this righteous robe, but what is that? That is Christ's perfect life that he lived for us. That is that righteous robe. It's not merely the blood of Christ, which is not the category error, but it is the life of Christ. It's his righteousness that we are covered in. And friends, we aren't to think that our Lord's obedience to God came easy to him. We've been saying all along that it is Jesus Christ obeying God's moral law perfectly that earns for us heaven, that earns for us a right standing before God. But we aren't to think, as many think, that Jesus Christ cruised to the cross, 
as if he was on cruise control the whole time. Friends, our Lord did not cruise the glory, but our Lord's obedience came with great challenges. His obedience led him to hunger in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. His obedience led him to rejection. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. His obedience led him to ridicule. They accuse the God-man of having a demon, to betrayal by a disciple whom he loved. But his obedience ultimately will lead him to Calvary, where we see at the death of Christ, the very apex and the height of Christ's obedience put on display. Jesus was active in his obedience, friends. He was aware of where his obedience would lead him. You see, friends, it's one thing to know you're going to suffer, but it's another thing to walk toward suffering. And Jesus Christ was active in his walking toward suffering. He walked toward the gates of hell. He was aware of what he was going to do. He was aware of the great suffering that was ahead of him. Yet we, from, we know that our Lord's foot remained one ahead of the other. In his life, Christ earns for us eternal life. And in his death, he earns for us forgiveness of sins. All throughout his life, our Christ displayed that he is the man of Isaiah 50, verse 5. The Lord God has opened my ears, and I was not rebellious, and I had not turned back. Friends, no one could have done this. No mere man even if you have obeyed the law of God perfectly, cannot earn you a right standing before God because you are too much in debt. The God-man had to come, Jesus Christ, and save us from our sins. So friends, when you think of salvation in Christ, don't limit your salvation by merely the blood of Christ. Don't merely say that you are you are saved by the blood of Christ, but you are saved by the life and perfect obedience to Christ. That is why salvation and justification is much more and is so much better than having our sins forgiven. It's so much better than having our sins forgiven. But friends, it's as it, when, when, when God sees us, he sees his beloved son, Jesus Christ. That is how we merit eternal life is not merely by the death, but by the life of Christ. I end with these great words by J. Gresham Machen, who was the founder of um, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and of um, Westminster Seminary. This was about a day before he died. He wrote a letter to another great theologian, John Murray. He said this, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Friends, I wonder if you, and I hope that you, can repeat those same words when you are dying. We talked about this looking to a place that is far greater than uh, the one that we have here. And friends, when we think about that place that we have that's far greater than the one that we have here, we are not to forget that of the standing that we have at that one place that is far greater than we have here. We look toward heaven. And how do we know we will enter heaven? Because we have been clothed by the righteousness of God. 
in Jesus Christ. And friends, when we consider the Lord's Supper, what we have before us is a beautiful picture of the active obedience and the passive obedience of Christ. We have in the cup the passive obedience of Christ, and we have in the bread the active obedience of Christ. We have the whole obedience of Christ put on display before us. And Jesus says, come. And every time we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, it is our reminder, it is God's reminder to us that our salvation is secure in the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. Friends, I hope that we have learned uh, much this evening and that we take all these things and that we dwell on them and glorify Christ in light of them. Let's now consider uh, our sin in Adam. Let's examine ourselves and then let's uh, fellowship with Christ at his table. Let's pray.